My name is Mike Shockey. I am a pastoral resident here. Many of you know me, and some of you are like, who is that guy? Honored to bring the Word of God this morning. It's a difficult word this morning. It's a philosophical world in a world that follows the Aristotelian or from Aristotle concept of you are what you do. Your identity is what you do or maybe what you've done. So a couple of disclaimers this morning. The first is is that this teaching today is not a rigorous exegesis of this text, although it is in biblical context and it will serve to as an on-ramp to hopefully help us understand uh, and how to make sense of, how to embrace suffering in our lives as Christians. As well, I'm going to say right up front that deliberately, because Peter in these verses has not included a great deal of application, and because it is of philosophical nature, then I have not included a great deal of application also because suffering is so varied among us, comes in so many forms. But this is rather an explanation of the importance of what we should know as believers, as Christians, when suffering comes our way. So whatever your particular suffering, all that we talk about today from the Scriptures will apply to that suffering as you suffer as Christians, whatever that is, and it will apply for your good by the grace of God. So by way of introduction, though we are in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, I want to point our thoughts towards John 15, 18 through 21. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but just for a moment to set this up. And I'm going to paraphrase some of this for brevity. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. I chose you out of the world, so the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master, and therefore, if they persecuted me, another way of seeing that is, if I suffered, they will also persecute you. You will also suffer. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This word from Christ was indeed originally given to his immediate disciples. But if as the word of God teaches us in Hebrews 4.12, where it tells us that the word of God is living and that it is active, it is never dead parchment. That is, if the word of God is for all of God's people throughout all of God's history, then count on this as we speak the Word of God this morning, as we focus in on that. The Word of God is for us today, this morning, and it is effective for us now. And since some of what we talk about this morning is going to be a bit hard on our sensibilities, we need to at least remember that at the end of the day that the reason God gives us His Word 
is not so that we will be or even feel condemned, but so that we can know the personalities, that we can know the standards, that we can know the judgments, and more importantly, if not most importantly, know the compassion of God himself in the gospel. Compassion, particularly as we see it unfolded in him, coming to the world as a man, Jesus Christ, in what is the greatest condescension of nobility ever known. And living out his standards on our behalf so that they apply to us, get this, as if we had done them ourselves. That is incredible. And then dying on our behalf because of our sin and finally being resurrected from that death. Why? in order to prove among many things to us that this life is absolutely not all that there is and that something far better awaits the people of God if but for a while they will endure the hardships, the sufferings of a world to which they do not belong a world in which they should, a world in which we should find ourselves feeling often like aliens and foreigners, just like our Lord Jesus did. As the old poem goes, this was the way of the master. Should not his people tread it still? Finally, before we stand and read our text this morning, I want to clarify what I just said a moment ago regarding how today's teaching may be a bit hard on our sensibilities. And what I mean here is that as Westerners, we're often so given to comfort and to luxury and to painlessness. You know, we want to avoid pain at all costs. We want to be comforted at, at all costs. And we're so given to it. And though those things are not inherently sinful in themselves, they so frequently become idols to us. And therefore, if there's one thing that the Western church, that's us, needs desperately to submit itself to as an unequivocal, absolute truth, it is this. To follow Jesus Christ is to invite sufferings of every kind into your life because he suffered. Because he suffered. Furthermore, the rational, logical other side to this coin is that if you are not suffering to some degree as it relates to living your life for Christ and not merely for yourself, something could in fact be amiss with the way that you engage or likely do not engage the Christian life as it ought to be lived. And that's not necessarily a challenge to the reality of our salvation, though for some, maybe. More so, it's a challenge like we're about to see from the Apostle Peter to truly submit to the wonders, yes, and the difficulties of the Christian life. This is no parade here. 
And as we hear what God says through Peter, remember this. Peter was a man who did very well at submitting to the wonders of life under Christ. I'm all in, man. Jesus says, yeah, you are. But Peter was a train wreck at submitting to the difficulties of life under the cross, under the weight of the cross of Christ. That is in the difficult times. And so we need to know that Peter is not speaking to us today as a man. He's not, he's not saying, hey, I've got it all figured out. He's not, he's not saying, I, I've known since the beginning and I've always been good at this. He's had to grow to this point. And he was kept by God in spite of his many failings until such a time as he finally submitted and resigned himself to the truth, the truth that is. To live the Christian life is always to live as the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is always in the process of being refined as precious metal and thus being conformed into the image of Christ she must therefore always walk through the fire. And in this case, the suffering in our lives is that fire. Now, just so that you guys know how much I suffer, there's an inside look at what I think, if you'll look at the screens here, that we could call the epitome of Christian suffering. As I was preparing to, you know, help you guys understand what the difficulty of the Christian life actually is. I was very comfy there. I had my blanket on, my coffee in my hand, and my wife is like, baby, what are you teaching on again? <laughs> so if you're able and out of great regard for God's word, let's stand and let's read together 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. This is the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, and I want you to remember this as we go through this today, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is key in everything we will talk about today. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, here he's saying that being a Christian is hard. It's hard. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This, 
This is the glorious word of God. It is, in fact, living and active. It is able to judge our very thoughts and our intentions. So as we pray this morning, Lord, we ask that you would cause it to affect our hearts, to dig into our souls, to refine and shape us according to your promises to us in Christ and according to your sovereign good pleasure as our good Father and as our very great reward. In Christ's name, we say to you together in our hearts, Lord, thanks be to God. You may be seated. You guys know that when I teach, I do like to work from a theme. Keeps my mind from running off into rabbit trails. And it stays, we stay tethered, I think, somewhat uh, to a main idea, so throughout the teaching we don't drift too badly. And I think we've already heard some things in the introduction that could very well serve uh, as a theme this morning. Uh, things like the fact that suffering is inevitable for the Christian, uh, that we are in fact the bride of Christ, and that as such we must be refined, we must be conformed into Christ's image, and so on. But I think we need to employ those concepts this morning as a foundation for what I believe Peter is really getting at in this passage. First, we must always keep in mind that all of Scripture, all of Scripture, is only ever understood correctly when it's understood through the lens of the gospel. If we do that, then we should see that Peter has in our text this morning, he has shifted his emphasis from what he has said in the previous verses where Pastor Todd had us last week in verses 1 through 11. He's shifted from verses that form what we would call an imperative, something that God wants us to do. And the shift for Peter in teaching the, uh, the church about suffering ultimately is going to echo the entire Bible's theme as it relates to what God is most chiefly concerned about when it comes to his people. Peter is shifting his thinking, his teaching, because he wants us to know that in God's economy, and get this, in God's economy, being is always more important and crucial than doing. Being is always more important and crucial than doing. That is, being chosen and named by God to belong to him eternally is infinitely more important than simply doing good things, particularly if we don't belong to God. And one of these, we remember, has eternal value. The being has eternal value. The doing has temporary value. Sounds like dangerous teaching. Perhaps we'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit, shall we? You abuse that, and he will take you to the woodshed every time. And before that does, in fact, sound like a loophole just to become lazy Christians, here's what we got to know. We got to know that the being... The reason that being is more important to God than doing is because being is the foundation of the doing. 
we got to ask ourselves, was God more concerned with the power and the might of his saints of old, or was he always more concerned with their heart and how his spirit would work through them? Not by power and not by might, but by what? By my spirit will these things be done, and for the right reasons. Had David, the king, had he done anything before he became king when he was a lowly shepherd boy? Had he done anything to earn God's favor? Or was it his heart, a heart that God knew he would mold and shape so that David would become a man after God's own heart? It was his heart. And in the converse, was Christ more concerned with the Pharisees doing? Hey guys, keep doing more. Or was he mostly angry with them over the fact that their doing had no real being behind it? He was, in fact, mostly angry with them. So Peter has now shifted his emphasis from the things that we do to live the Christian life well and to endure the suffering that comes with it. Todd covered all that last week. And he shifted to what we must know about why our lives as Christians, including and especially the suffering that goes with those lives. He shifted to why our lives as Christians are to be rejoiced over no matter what happens to us. When you are insulted, when you are cast down, when these sufferings come, rejoice because the Spirit of God rests upon you. Do you know how huge that is? Do you know that it's the most significant thing that can ever happen to the human being in the history of humanity? It's to have the Spirit of God eternally resting upon you. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more important. The lives of your children are not more important. The lives of your spouses are not more important. Your own life, your money, nothing is more important than having the Spirit of God rest upon you. And so therefore, because it does, rejoice. Rejoice. Feel that. Know that. Our theme this morning, taking from the text, then looks something like this Suffering as Christians proves the validity of our eternal hope in Christ. It proves the validity of our eternal hope in Christ. Therefore, we're commanded to rejoice in it instead of fearing that suffering. So let's unpack this theme just a little bit in these verses. We'll work backwards by first asking the question, is God saying through Peter that we should rejoice in the actual suffering itself? Uh Uh-uh. Absolutely not. Nobody does that. Woohoo! Another lash, please. Yeah, nobody does that. And now, in answering this question, though, we're going to also more than likely be answering what we mean when we say in the theme that suffering as Christians 
proves the validity of our eternal hope in Christ. What do we mean by that? And the basis for that answer is going to be found in identity. Or, as we've said earlier, being. Let's think on Acts 5.41 for a moment where Peter and the apostles have been beaten, likely according to Jewish tradition, which like Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.24 was 40 lashes minus one. I don't know why they refer to it as that. It's 39 lashes. Yay, I get minus one. I think, why? 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 Thank you. But the apostles and Peter... They've been scourged severely. This was, no, this was no paddling from our fifth grade teacher. This was scourged severely. Flesh opened up, wounded in a way that they would feel that one forever. And they were scourged because they disobeyed a direct order from the Sanhedrin to not preach about Jesus as the true Christ. And yet... God doesn't tell us that they rejoiced because of the suffering in and of itself. Rather, they rejoiced, says the word, because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The original language used here portrays an ethos of men who were more concerned with being identified in Christ than with what happens to their mortal bodies, what happens with their lives. Anybody awake yet? Remember, in Christ, we are to be convicted, not condemned. Remember that, just in case that stings a little when you think, wow, what I'm mostly concerned about is my mortal body and my life. I don't know that I can rejoice. I I couldn't do that. I mean, it's some supernatural thing. You bet it's supernatural. But you've got the same spirit today here in you as they had in them then. Oh, man, you got to know it. Why am I shouting? Because it's that darn significant. Wake up, church. Oh, I say it to myself, don't I? And so Peter is utterly qualified to say, in effect, and I liberally paraphrase our verses today. He's saying, in effect, beloved Christians, don't be surprised when you suffer for the sake of Christ. Because it's impossible to have the Spirit of God resting upon you as it does living inside of you as your new life, and for you to not do the works of Christ in such a way that most certainly will get you insulted, tormented, and sometimes even cast out. Because when you've got the Spirit of Christ on you, those things will happen. It's also impossible, says Peter, that if the Holy Spirit rests upon you, if that's your identity as Christ, that you haven't been chosen from before the foundation of the world by God. Ephesians 1, 4, to be His. Because you have. 
impossible then that God in doing so has not already begun an eternal work in you that he absolutely, Philippians 1.6, will bring to a good end for you. Because he will. It's also impossible that you won't also suffer in many ways as Christ suffered because following him means that you will. And yet, as our theme says, it's impossible that those sufferings you endure won't clarify because they will clarify in your heart that you truly do belong to God through faith in his son Jesus And so, therefore, knowing these things, rejoice that God has counted you as his own and that he loves you exactly the way he loves Christ. So there is an identity then that Peter gets to in these verses of being as opposed to a doing which is meant to encourage us in whatever suffering we endure. As those who live by the name and by the identity of Jesus himself. And finally, on this concept of identity and being, Peter in verses 17 and 18, and we'll focus particularly on 17, he uses a pretty common literary device of the day, which is just simply a parallel, and albeit this is a negative parallel, He uses it to assure us of whether or not we actually belong to God. So in verse 17, it says, it's time for judgment. And by the way, that word is an assessment, basically taken from the likes of Ezekiel 8 and Malachi 3. But it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Guys, the theological goofball and nerd that I am, there is so much going on in this verse. There is a lot. Let's look at it a little more closely. Peter speaks of the household, household of God. That's us. Judgment beginning with us. And then conversely, he compares that with those who do not obey the gospel of God. So I think one of the things that we have to ask ourselves in order to get to the bottom of this and how this gives us an assurance of our faith is we've got to ask ourselves, okay, then what does it mean to obey Christ? What does it mean to to obey the gospel, I should say? Is Peter talking about our obedience once we're in Christ? Is that what he means by obeying the gospel, or, or in this case, not obeying the gospel? Absolutely not. He's already established that he's speaking to the church. He's already made the parallel comparison between those who are in the household of God and those who are not. This is the reason we've taken such pains today to point out that Peter in verses 12 through 19 has shifted from the imperative of doing in verses 1 through 11 to the indicative, I guess we would say, of being in verses 12 through 19. And if he has done that, if that's true, 
then we cannot reasonably apply the idea of obeying the gospel of God as the things that we do once we're already in Christ. We're in fact obligated by the context that Peter has established here, we're obligated to understand the concept of obeying the gospel of God in light of Romans 10, 9 through 10. Obeying the gospel of God as Peter means it here is believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. And that only because God himself has begun a work in us by giving us the ability and the desire to do so. Guys, this doesn't mean that there isn't an element of obeying the gospel in functional ways. There certainly is, and it's huge. It's huge. But in these verses, obeying the gospel of God can be boiled down to what late theologian Robert Raymond, fantastic theologian, but what he says when it comes to his concept of obeying the gospel, when he says, my hope Our eternal hope lies solely in the finished work of Christ and not, not in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference in the being and the doing? Is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit unimportant? Not at all. But is there any ongoing work of the Holy Spirit without the finished work? work of Christ, having already been applied to us from eternity past. Do you see the significance? For Raymond, obeying the gospel is chiefly about knowing and being, and only secondarily about doing. And as we've said before, doing in the kingdom of God is necessary. It's going to happen, though, as a result of being. And in fact, The doing is what more often than not causes our suffering as Christians. So doing is important. And yet all the suffering, all the doing in the world can never, ever earn us the affection of God that causes him to call us our own. That is his choice And thus, something over which we have no control, which is why it is imperative that we listen carefully when we hear the likes of a Psalm 95 that instructs us to our eternal good when it says, today, if you hear his voice, don't do what? Somebody say it. Pretty close. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts when you hear his voice come to him. The writer to the Hebrews puts this into context for us as Christians and simultaneously echoes Peter when he speaks of what obedience to the gospel means in chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just simply because of its clarity. Those verses say this, God said they will never enter my place of rest. That means they'll never enter my place of eternal salvation. So therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, so God's rest is there for people to enter. 
But those who first heard this good news, the gospel, failed to enter because what? Because they disobeyed God. They disobeyed the gospel. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted in Psalm 95. Again, we say, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. There will be questions on this, undoubtedly, especially things like, who does the hardening of our hearts? Is it us or is it God? Short answer, and you can email me later for a longer discussion, yes. Now that we understand something about being, I think I can wrap this up in seven minutes here. I think we can uh, transition into one of the only real commands that we see in this passage. Our theme says this. It says that as a result of having our eternal hope in Christ proven and validated to our own hearts through our Christian suffering, as a result of that, we are to then cultivate a single ultimate response to that suffering, and that is to rejoice. This does not mean that there won't be weeping, groaning, and complaining. So the command here is to rejoice. We would like it if it was immediate rejoicing, but it probably isn't going to be. It doesn't mean we won't question God in the midst of our sufferings, doesn't mean we won't be angry with him. Doesn't mean that we won't question the reality of our own salvation. God, are you cursing me? What's going on here? The command to rejoice does not mean that rejoicing will be an immediate response. Again, it likely will not be. But God says through Peter that if we first learn to embrace the truth that suffering, as he says in the opening verse, is not to be regarded as a strange thing to us. And to Western culture, church folks, suffering is strange. We have worked entirely too hard to not suffer. It is strange, but he's saying it ought not be strange. Are we somehow different Christians than the Christians of old? Functionally, uh uh-huh. But in terms of the way God sees us, no. It's quite normal, says Peter, to suffer when you've been brought into the household of God by God's own decree. And as long as we're not going through the kinds of suffering that verse 15 says are the kinds of suffering that a non-Christian, you can email me about that later as well, but that a non-Christian murderer, thief, evildoer, or busybody, or meddler is going through, as long as you're not going through that kind of non-Christian suffering that way, then we rationally have no choice but to rejoice at some point in our suffering if we just simply consider the alternative, which is that all of humanity suffers, but not all of humanity is eternally saved by the grace and mercy of God in Christ as we are. That's huge. We must therefore rejoice in the fact that God, for absolutely no reason that we can name, 
has righteously decided to spare us from eternal judgment, his judgment. And instead, Ephesians 2, 6, he has already seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. It's already done. Where we will rest in more joy than we can ever imagine now forever. More beauty than we can ever imagine now. And we will rest that way forever. That is the thing Peter is telling us that we must rejoice over. Finally, if we are the bride of Christ, and we are, we must remember that we will be presented, and this applies, this, this bit of suffering applies, this is why suffering applies. We will be, Ephesians 5.27, presented in the heavenly court to God by Christ, to Christ by God. We'll be presented without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any imperfection. We will be perfectly holy. And we will be presented as such for the primary reason, the primary reason of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Christ's life and his perfections are imputed to us as though they were our own. And our sin is imputed to him as though it was his own. Think about that for a minute. And we will be presented as a perfectly holy bride for the secondary reason of the fact that the suffering of God's people serves the single purpose of refining them so that the impurities are slowly brought to the surface and then cast away until, as my professor Sinclair Ferguson says, God sees his own reflection in us. If you haven't heard Sinclair Ferguson, you can't get those years back. So we are commanded to rejoice in our Christian suffering because it proves our identity as belonging to God, which is far more important than any temporary suffering. I guess I could have just said that and spared us all a bunch of time. I want to conclude with some thoughts here in the last minute or so. There's a lot of us that are in constant suffering. I've done a lot of counseling over the years. I've done it in prisons. I've done it in churches. I myself deal with a bunch of stuff. And there's a lot of us that are in constant suffering mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Let's not ignore that. A lot of us live in our heads. So does God, does he include that kind of suffering in everything that we've talked about? You bet, 100%. Why? By virtue of the fact that every issue, every issue of God's people is covered under the covenant of grace that he has established with us in Christ. Well, what if that mental and emotional suffering that I don't seem to be able to do much about is actually keeping me from going out and doing the service of, of Christians and, and doing this work? What if it's keeping me from that? I would say to you this, rejoice in God's grace and mercy because why? Because God requires no more of you in your daily service to him than he is willing to give you the ability to perform. 
take that in. And finally, how can I rejoice when I have so much pain? When I feel like I'm under God's curse instead of his love. I want to finish this by speaking to you one of the greatest encouragements in Hebrews 12, which serves as well as a portrait of what God is doing when you suffer. What's he doing? The writer to the Hebrews tells us this. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? As his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. Don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, as he does all of his children, it's a problem. It means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. And there we are, back to Peter's emphasis on being. So as we close this morning, let us rejoice in our suffering as Christians, whatever that suffering may look like, because it in fact does prove the validity of our eternal security in Jesus Christ. And absolutely nothing is more important or significant to us than that. Let's pray. Father, we love you so very much. We ask that you would Seal the words that you've spoken, not the words that I have spoken, but that the words that you have spoken would be sealed to our hearts, that the words that you have spoken from your Bible, from your word, from your revelation, would move us today, this afternoon, would move us tomorrow, that tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and so forth would be different in light of what you've spoken to us today. And we pray that in fact, the things of this world would indeed grow strangely dim in the light of what Christ is doing for us. Because God, we praise you for the fact that when you absolutely owed us nothing but destruction and punishment, you instead have given your people mercy. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.